We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Great news from Sprint. The wait is finally over. The new Samsung Galaxy Note 10 with the powerful S Pen has arrived at Sprint and you can get it for 50% off with a Sprint Flex lease. That's right. Get the power of performance and productivity of the Galaxy Note 10 for less than $20 per month. There's never been a better time to switch. To learn more, visit your local Sprint store, sprint.com slash Galaxy Note 10 or call 800 Sprint 1 today. 1979 a month after 1980 monthly credit applied within two bills with approved credit 18 month lease and new line of service. If canceled early, remain balance due. Exclusive tax coverage and offer not available everywhere. Third activation fee restrictions apply. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. Is it Christmas Day? Is it your favorite time of the year? Is it your favorite holiday? Because it sort of feels like mine. What I wanted to happen happened, although it was a super backdoor route. We got a great, great show for you guys today. I'm James DiVirgilio alongside Alan Williams. We're going to visit with Ben Troop. We're going to talk with Bill Carr, the former athletic director at the University of Florida. We're going to get their thoughts on what went down last week, who they like as coaches, what the future looks like. And of course, as always, you're going to get all of Alan and I's candid thoughts on a crazy week. Pros, when the job demands more of the supplies you use most, start with Lowe's. Because at Lowe's, we stock the right quantities you need for any size job. And at everyday savings, like up to 30% off drywall, drywall accessories, and insulation every day when you buy in bulk. Order at Lowe'sforpros.com and we'll have your order ready for pickup with dedicated pro loaders to get you loaded up and back to the job site faster. For your next job and the next, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's in the annals of the University of Florida football program. James, it certainly was a crazy week. Starting on Monday with an odd press conference all the way to Sunday when the hammer finally came down. James, what were your emotions like throughout the week? Well, it should be known, and we'll peel back the curtain a little bit here, that on Monday, Alan and I, we watch the press conferences, and then we typically go on the air shortly thereafter. And last week in particular, we had really just watched the presser And given our guest schedule, uh, we went on the air very quickly thereafter. There was actually a a 10-second discussion on whether or not we should include the death threats. And we said, you know what, let's just do it. It could be something. I don't think either of us imagined that it would have gone to the level it did. And we did mention on the podcast, that was odd, didn't make a lot of sense, probably shouldn't do that. But 
it sort of went to uh, a weird dream scenario for me in particular, Alan, and it feels weird to say that. I don't want this to come off, and I'll give the, the James disclaimer, as I do each year on this podcast, as often as possible. I'm not talking about these people as humans, although this does go to the character of Jim McElwain. But for me, I had weighed my opinion. I thought it was time for Jim McElwain to go. I'm a big believer in keeping coaches for three years. And if they're not getting it done under the three-year rule, get rid of them. And all of these things sort of happened vis-a-vis a backdoor route. But my emotions went from Monday, dropping the podcast, sort of just being depressed that we're probably going to lose to Georgia and that maybe it's going to be closer than I think it's going to be, which is going to just give me more suffering time under McElwain. To Wednesday, when you're getting reports that maybe this is this is going the wrong way, and I'm getting texts from my friends who I respect with their inside opinion that they're seriously considering firing him, and McElwain does not walk back his press conference at all on Wednesday, and culminating with the Friday night and Saturday morning reports that he's actually going to be gone, and then sort of watching the Georgia game in this uh, this maybe like I don't know what the right word is, but this malaise of happiness, if those two things can go together, thinking that, yeah, this kind of sucks, but this is actually kind of great because I feel like he's not going to be coaching anymore. And as a long-term fan of the program, I feel like that's what this program needed. So I don't want to say it was a roller coaster. It actually was like at the bottom and it sort of just continued to build excitement for me and then peaking with him being fired. And now I'm like opening my Christmas present and it feels really good. And again, that maybe feels a little savage to say, but I really want what's best for this program in the long run. And I did not feel like McElwain was it. And personally, Alan, we've covered this a lot. His style, his demeanor, the way he answered questions, his lack of ability to be articulate really drove me crazy. And so it's nice to not have to deal with that anymore. Yeah, it was such a weird process. You know, like you said, going back to Monday, when the university released that statement saying you know, that he had offered no additional details, I personally didn't read it in the way that other people did. I thought, well, McElwain just doesn't want to say anything more about it. And the university is just saying, hey, we talked to him about it. But from the reaction of other people, it instantly became clear that there was more to the story than this. And, you know, there was some excitement because I think both of us had come to the conclusion, you much more vocally, obviously, that we needed to make a change. But it happened so fast. I mean, even a couple of weeks ago, it would have been unthinkable, no matter what people's opinions were, that there was almost zero chance he was going to be fired. And what a what a rapid chain, chain of events. It, it's really crazy. And I have to admit a little bit of sadness as well, because I feel like I had pulled so hard for this group of players to rise above and, and had genuine hope coming into the year. I know you did too. Um, and to see that fall flat again and just, you know, mixed with the hope of something new and and being relieved that it was, you know, we weren't going to have to like deal with the will McElwain coach or not all throughout this year and maybe into next year. Um, a little bit of disappointment as well. Yeah, it felt like to me, this was a relationship that I was in and I didn't want to be a part of it, but I couldn't get out of it. And I was going to have to stay with this person for much longer than I wanted. That's what I felt. And now I feel like that freedom you get when there's a relationship that's not a good one, it's not a healthy one, and you are able to end things and it's mutual, quote unquote, and, and you sort of wake up the next day and think, oh, this stressor that's been that's been at me is now released. And and this this sort of source of frustration in my life where I don't philosophically or align with this this situation, this person, 
100% is, is gone. And I can now begin to rebuild and go in a different direction. And I think that's how I feel about this. And Alan, the Georgia game happened on Saturday. It was an ugly affair. There are a lot of things we could talk about each week on this podcast. You are used to me as a listener going through the film study. Uh, we are not going to do that this week. I imagine most of you probably don't really want to do that this week. Uh, there's other things to talk about. Our coach is no longer here. It doesn't really seem relevant to go through and kind of dissect what happened. So instead, Alan, let's talk about like our meta takeaways from the game. What was your main takeaway from the Florida-Georgia game on Saturday? It was weird. Um, I can't fully say that the players knew that he was gone and they played that way, but it sure seemed like it, especially – at the beginning of the game, the defensive line especially seemed out of sorts. Um, now they did lock it down a little bit, and those guys did play with some effort. But everyone seemed just kind of lost out there and no urgency to the process at all. It wasn't like we were in a big game. It just felt a little bit kind of like an inevitability. And that's not what we've seen. This team fights every week, and we didn't really see that from them. Did you come to the same conclusion? Yeah, essentially. I mean, I really did think this game should have been close. I think you saw moments after the first quarter happened. The second quarter was probably how the whole game would have been if, if in fact, this Gator team wasn't so distracted during the week. But this is a team that's been presented innumerable and really innumerable distractions throughout this season. And I think this was just the peak of it. Eventually, it hit a critical mass where you really can't overcome 15 different major things happening to your program and go up against a program that is absolutely trending in a white hot up direction and not expect this to happen. I was disappointed to see the level of effort given. I think for a lot of these players, you probably still want to go out there and play this game. And it didn't look like they weren't trying, but the amount of focus is is not there. And again, these are not professionals. These are kids. And so you, you expect some of that. So I wasn't surprised by it. I wasn't angry by it. Uh, I think... If we could have done a podcast, Alan, on Saturday morning, uh, I would have absolutely entirely changed my close game prediction uh, because that was no longer relevant. The, that was no longer what was going to happen anymore. Uh, and, and therefore, the main takeaway is it was medicine for me that we took and we needed to take. I don't know that it ensured that McIlwain was gone. I think he probably already was, but that was absolutely like a no-brainer. There's no way you're keeping him now scenario. Concluding with him walking out with that sort of sheepish smile on his face, uh, which you could argue is him going out happily, or you could just add that to the list of things McIlwain does that don't really show me he's got any sort of awareness about his job, what it means, what it means to other people. Uh, and it seemed like a fitting ending. I will say, though, Alan, my main bright side takeaway from this game, and I was emotionally rooting for this, was for us to score points. I did not want our streak to end yes. at the hands of Georgia. I did not want Macklin to be responsible for ending a decades-long streak. All of us were very, very happily celebrating in Jacksonville when that happened. And so that was a big positive, and I almost left the game feeling happy. It was very weird, but I think I really did because that mattered to me. The outcome of the game did not matter as much. That did matter. We kept that going. And there was a silver lining there. Yeah, in the middle of the game, I was like, we're not going to score because we're going to keep going for it on fourth down. We're going to keep going for it um, in really tough down and distance situations. It doesn't make sense to kick a field goal down 42. So I enjoyed the fact that we scored as well. All right, James, let's back it up here. I want to take a look at the McElwain era as a whole. 
But first, how did we get here? How did we go from McElwain wins the SEC East twice, starts off three and one, to him being fired? What are the reasons he was let go? Well, if you've been a listener of this show from the beginning, I think you're already going to know my answer. And that's that there have been signs that that this team has not improved on a year-to-year basis. We've chronicled them. They're well chronicled on this very show. It's something I've been keyed into from the beginning. Uh, it peaked It peaked with the Will Greer game against Old Miss and going undefeated in the first half of that season, and we never came close to that level again. Uh, there were issues with recruiting. There were issues with who his other coaches were. There were issues with play calling from the beginning. We had personnel issues. We had quarterback decision issues. We had game management issues. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of issues, Alan, that occurred from day one. And that is why we got to where we are, is you cannot be excellent in what you do in life unless you are excellent in the vast majority of tasks that are assigned to you under your watch. And Jim McElwain simply was not excellent in the vast majority of tasks that fell under his duties. And eventually, eventually it will catch up to you. The two SEC East titles, which you heard Alan and I say multiple times, were not real. That was not a real situation. We did not beat quality competition. It's very important for you as fans to note moving forward that winning a division championship does not mean anything. As we said in the beginning of this season, Alan, the style with which you play is typically the best predictor of your future performance. And keep that in mind as we move into our next coaching search and as we evaluate this next coach's tenure. The style, the style is really what you should be focusing on out of the gate. The wins and losses can be a smokescreen for what is really happening. And I think for McElwain, it never got past the smokescreen status. He really did cement himself, Alan, as Will Muschamp 2.0. His record is slightly better than his. But if you let him play out this entire season, it's very likely that it would have been almost identical to what Wills was percentage-wise. And that is ominous, and it's also unfortunate. But it was not something that we didn't see coming. Uh, and and I think with the exception of the hope we had for this year, there there wasn't any data that would have indicated otherwise looking at his tenure. And so we, we wound up at the inevitable conclusion, and Alan... So I think I chronologically covered a lot of this stuff. Like the next question is, why was he fired now? Because that's the part that neither of us saw coming. And it was hard to envision a scenario like this happening. So why now? And what are some things that led to that happening? Because we know it just wasn't about wins and losses, as Strickland said. Yeah, I guess there's some lingering ongoing friction between McElwain and the administration that's come out. People have pointed to a comment that he made as indicative of this um, right after the Outback Bowl, you know, rather large win against Iowa. Good moment for the program. McElwain's kind of recounting successes, and he says, we'll see about the support we get from the administration going forward. We'll look for that or something close to that. And that's a weird thing to say. I mean, you're a guy who's not had that much success and has really – been taken care of by the administration and the athletic department in terms of facilities and contracts and whatever you've wanted, you've gotten pretty much. And I, I think he just started to rub people the wrong way, or maybe didn't just start, continue to rub people the wrong way. This wasn't just about wins and losses. I think his personality, not just with the media, but with the fans, with really everybody surrounding the university, I think 
he just wasn't a good fit. Um, he was tone deaf. He was not self-aware, as you mentioned. There's innumerable things that, I don't know, just left people feeling ill at ease about him in this position. His personality didn't fit with the high-profile scrutiny of an SEC job. Um, Scott Strickland mentioned it's more there, there's more, about more than wins and losses, but let me be frank as well. Ultimately, it is about wins and losses. If Jim McElwain had won two SEC, not East Division titles, but two SEC championships and had run in headlong into this week, he would still be the coach. Now, I think what the straw that broke the camel's back is the whole death threats thing, that this was an opportunity for the university to say, okay, that's enough. Not any one of these things, I think, would have gotten him fired, but the culmination of all of these things, and really, not just the wins and losses, but like you said, the style, the fact that their offense had not improved, ranking near the bottom of in every category with no hope of recovery. All those things put together, I think, left them not with no choice, but with a very clear directive. And the moment that the reason it happened right now is because of what he said on Monday. Yeah, in the words of of Denny Green, he was who we thought he was. And I recall back to his first presser thinking, man, he's he's just not a likable guy. I mean, right out of the gate, he rubs you as a sort of slimy, sleazy, manipulative kind of guy in his first press conferences. And you combine that with a smugness and an air about him, which isn't the cool, conceited person, because that goes hand in hand sometimes. Just sort of a, a, a clownish, smug guy that doesn't really recognize his place in the world at that time and isn't able to connect it to other things. And then I think you build this narrative where Will Greer gets suspended. We tell the story on the podcast of another side that we hear. We tell that story every single year. We told it this year as well. Um, at the time we told the story, there were not a whole lot of people who believed it. You know, I personally got a lot of contact about that story. I can't be right. Why would Mac do that? Why would you believe the players? Why would you believe your contacts? Uh, I think, as we said at the time, Alan, three years ago, that the truth will come out and eventually someone's character will be revealed. And I think it's very clear to me personally, and not everyone agrees with this, that Mac's character was revealed. And this is the guy that shows up two hours late to a meeting with Will Greer. This is a guy that acts like he can win with everyone, although he can't win. And this is a guy who doesn't get it, culminating with him walking off the field, hand in hand with his wife, with a sheepish grin on his face, uh, which is just an interesting way to go out. You know, there's no level of, of somberness there. There's no level of, of, of frustration. It's just not matching what should be felt there. And, and that, to me, is the story of Jim McElwain. He's a smug guy who's not likable. And you said it best, Alan. You can be not likable, but you better be incredible at what you do. And if you're likable, you better be good enough at what you do to make it hard for your employers to get rid of you. But if you are unlikable and you are not good at what you do, this is what results. A very, very early firing at the hands of something that the majority of coaches would not have gotten fired for because you have spent your tenure rubbing your bosses, the university, the wrong way. And I give Strickland a heck, a heck of a lot of credit for handling this in the way that he did. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later on. But I thought that was an exemplary way to professionally fire someone who is insubordinate, is not rep representing your university well at all, 
and just continued to remain disconnected like he did. Now, the question that remains here to be asked, Alan, it was a perfect storm is kind of what we're creating here. This was the perfect storm to fire a guy who is still Florida, technically still the back-to-back SEC East defending champions. If we hadn't have lost to LSU and A&M and we were competitive with Georgia, it's hard to find a narrative that McIlwain gets fired, right? Uh, the flip side is also true. We easily could have one win this season and McIlwain's easily getting fired. Uh, but there's a lesson here, and I think all Gator fans and Strickland know this, Alan. The style with who we hire next as our coach is probably going to be the most important thing we look for because we had a mismatch in style with Will Muschamp. We had a mismatch in style with Ron Zook. And you've had a mismatch in style with Jim McElwain. And all three of those guys have been fantastic flameouts here at UF. Strickland indicated that in his presser. I was very happy to hear that because I think he gets that this is about style first and foremost. And McElwain, if for no real other reason, was fired because of his own personal style, personal ethics, and way he treated not only the media, but also the athletic department around him. And with that, Alan, I will tee you up for maybe a difficult question. But first, the highlights of the Jim McElwain era for you. What are you going to take away from this? What will you remember? Yeah, and there were a few. I mean, I think the peak you mentioned was that Ole Miss game where it seemed like we were emerging as a powerhouse. We had this redshirt freshman QB who just dominated the number, I think, three team at worst number five team and crushed them. And we had a kid who looked like he was going to be a star. So that was probably the peak of our powers. Now, there were some good moments. Anytime you beat Georgia two years in a row like we did, I'll take those wins. And I think I will always remember the LSU game. Um, I'm not talking about this year's, but last year's, the fourth down goal line stand. Um, and there were some good wins. There were some good moments. The Tennessee game this year, the Hail Mary. I, I don't want to erase those because – McElwain wasn't a great coach. Those are really cool moments. Um, actually, you know, both both Tennessee games in the Swamp are really, really cool. Now, there's also a lot of bad ones. Get those in a second. But what what are a few of your highlights? Maybe I took them all there. Well, I, I think back of like what I'm going to take away from this and the conversation I had at the beach this weekend is what will you remember from this tenure? And the two things that kept popping up for all of us were Jim McElwain with a shark. Of course, it wasn't him, but the shark picture <laughs> is something we'll remember. And that that reminds me of the Ron Zook story. And I think a lot of people don't remember this now, but Ron Zook and what I really remember most from this tenure is that Ron Zook and like 10 or 12 football players were were on a frat lawn early in the morning having like a, a West Side Story standoff. And Ron has to like rally the players and have them leave. <laughs> and uh, that, That's just always stuck with me as like one of the most bizarre things that could happen to a coach. And I, and I think for McElwain, the shark picture, but really mostly it's him saying things like pretty cool. That's it's pretty cool. Hey Mac, what'd you think of this game? Look, look at these fans. Look, look around you. This is, this is pretty cool. And that's probably what's going to stick with me the most is like, why does he always saying pretty cool to everything? But certainly the highlight in the field was the old Miss game, the comeback win against Tennessee. Those were two of the most fun wins I've had in the swamp because you still had hope that we were actually going in the right direction. Uh, the Tennessee one this year for me didn't move the needle. As I mentioned, it was sloppy. It was bad. Butch Jones is terrible. It wasn't even a moment that I actually will look back on fondly. It sort of just happened. And I know that maybe makes me cynical or a harsh fan, but it didn't matter. Like to me, the big moments matter. And I think the hope 
sort of ebbed and flowed and dwindled. But without a doubt, the Tennessee and the Old Miss game, those are up there in my most fun moments in the swamp. And I will remember that about this era. And then I will also remember the rest of what happened after that. And that's kind of the story of Jim McElwain is it never really reached a level of promise because it was too soon. His candle got lit. It started to burn pretty brightly. And then before you knew it, it was snuffed out. And and from there, you sort of didn't have any more wax left to light the candle with. And that's kind of what it felt like uh, doing this podcast each and every week. So I will say a bonus thing though, Alan, doing the podcast and the time at which McElwain has been coached is probably one of the greatest blessings Alan yes. and I could have. So we probably need to extend a personal thank you to Jim McElwain thank for you. creating yes, so you. many content pieces for us to discuss with you each week and break down on film. Uh, I have no doubt that's why our show has 10,000 of you wonderful listeners out there supporting us each week. Uh, is a Never lot, a boring moment. Yeah, a lot of this tenure has been absolutely sort of absurd in a lot of ways. And so, and so here we are. And the lowlights, of course, Alan... I've mentioned a couple of them. I'm curious as to what yours are because ours tend to differ on the, the low light side. What was what was the lowest low for you in the McElwain era? I'll point to two. Uh, one, of course, is the Will Greer suspension. It's been I think that'll be a touchstone for this program and this fan base until we recover offensively. There's one glimmer of hope, and then, as I famously said, you know this is this is why we can't have nice things. Um, man, that was a tough one. I, I don't know if I've still recovered from that. I know he, it still lingers from you for you with the Will Greer watch every week. And then the FSU games. For me, FSU is enemy number one. And we've been humiliated in those games the last two years. Um, and they've piled on merciless, mercilessly as they should. Um, and I, I dread those games. Um, <laughs> under the McElwain era. Uh, this year, who knows? Both teams are a hot mess. But um, those are the Will Greer moment, obviously, both the suspension and then him leaving um, and the FSU. What about you? Yeah, you know, I wasn't even thinking about the FSU and Bama moments because I just think of all of the, the, the personality things that grate on me with him, which I think is what lingers the most. And anyone who knows me personally... I like I like stylish things. I like articulate things. And most of all, I like truthful things. I really like people that look out for the interests of others and are doing what is best for those around them. And I just never felt like McElwain did that. And I felt like things he did off the field indicated that. And so for me, the lowest low was the Will Greer story. I was in a weird spot with that. I had a connection to people very close to Will. And I'm hearing this totally different story and I'm watching how it's handled with McIlwain. And I know I came to a very strong conclusion that, you know, McIlwain just seemed to really be handling that in a very sinister maybe way that didn't match up. And and then just the comments that were made and the way he handled things, very unprofessional. And I think that, that, that sticks with me as the lowest low. And then just the on the field things that happened, Alan, it, it was hard. I mean, when you look back at the Ron's look years, those are frustrating years, but we had a pretty good offense we did dumb stuff, but I didn't find myself like vilifying Ron Zook. The Muschamp years, you know, you felt for the guy. He couldn't get it done. It was really, really frustrating and hard to watch. But you didn't like have this strong dislike for Will Muschamp. But I really truthfully have a, a just a disdain for McIlwain. And and that's what I think I'm going to take as my lowest low. Like, this is a coach that I just didn't didn't like. And I don't think I'm the only one that felt that way. And I think that's a large reason why we are where we are. So... Let's put. No, and I just want to say real quick. I mean, that's why the university—you you saw it with Muschamp. They went to bat for him 
and that after that four and eight year, most guys have been fired, but they liked him. They wanted him to succeed. And the opposite here with McElwain, the first chance they had to fire him, they took it. And that's, so that shows about their personality. And that's it. And let's 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 quickly mention a, a story that got play in the past day or two. Steve Spurrier is known to have wanted to reach out to Jim McElwain and assist with the offense on at least more than one occasion. And mentioning the Will Muschamp situation, Steve Spurrier is extremely good friends with Will Muschamp. He still goes up there and hangs out with Will Muschamp. He was rooting for Will Muschamp. Now, Spurrier will be the first to tell you he didn't get it done. But that just illustrates the massive difference between these guys. And uh, Alan, I wanted your quick commentary on that. I have some thoughts on it. I wanted you to go first. You come to Florida. You're the head coach. Urban Meyer very gracefully handled the Steve Spurrier situation. He invited him in. He talked to him. He listened to him. What a great mind he was. He gave him lots of public press. Will Muschamp did the same thing. What a great asset it is to have this guy, you know, uh, as soon as he sort of retired. And then that that happened with the, the Muschamp and the McElwain thing. It was just always like the consummate Steve Spurrier is the guy. McElwain actually had Steve Spurrier available to him as an official ambassador in a role of someone who can assist. And nothing is made of it. And now we know that not only nothing's made of it, he basically didn't return the phone call and was like, hey, forget about it. What are your thoughts on on that situation? What should have been done if Steve Spurrier is well, reaching I- out? Yeah, I mean, it's really the height of arrogance to think that you've got it figured out enough that you don't want to take any kind of input from Steve Spurrier, who obviously has your best interest at heart. Steve Spurrier is not trying to become the coach of the Gators. He's not trying to take your job. That that just smacks me as highly arrogant, and it fits with the McElwain narrative. It doesn't surprise me that that went down. I mean, I guess everyone thinks that they know best, and they don't want people meddling but you've got a guy who revolutionized college football a couple offices away and you're struggling. It's not like we were lighting it up in Spurs. Like, Hey, I got to play for you. It's like, okay, thanks Steve. You know, we're scoring a hundred points a game. It, it, that just really rubs me the wrong way as well. I, and obviously we revere Steve Spurrier. So we're probably a little biased in this, but I don't know. I mean, we've already killed him for a bunch of stuff and there's just one more log on the fire. Yeah, it's just one of those things that comes out and it makes sense, like you mentioned. And it's not easy. Look, I think if you're a professional in your job, you probably think, hey, I know how to do this better than most. And if you're the current head coach, you think, hey, Spurrier was the coach a while ago. And I have my own thoughts and my own system, my own style. But if you get to the point in your own personal life where you don't think you can learn from somebody else, you have lost all sense of wisdom. You are no longer on the wisdom track. You are on the foolish track. And, and that is very indicative of where a human being is if they think they've cornered the market on wisdom and knowledge. And obviously McElwain thought he had nothing to gain from Spurrier and uh, didn't even entertain it. Even if you wanted to at a decency level to say, look, this guy's a legend. Come on in, Steve. Let's talk about it. Even if you were just doing that, that'd be the right move. But for that to come out the way it did, again, no surprise. And these are extra little things that the athletic department is certainly aware of and they contribute to decisions that are being made with regards to his performance. All right, let's put a bow on McElwain. The McElwain era is over. I think almost everyone out there is feeling a sense of relief, probably a sense of excitement. Coaching searches are exciting. They're fun. Uh, it gives you a chance to, to sort of rebuild your hope again in your brand and, and think of who's going to be the next face of this, of this program. And before we go into what coaches we think are on the list, I want to ask you, Alan, about the Strickland presser. He's generating a lot of buzz, a lot of buzz in the sporting world for how well he handled this. What were your thoughts from the presser? Very impressed with him. Uh, 
I, I've liked him overall. Now, we haven't seen him really have to do anything significant yet. This is his moment in the sun here. And so far, he's handling it really well. I mean, he's speaking to the Florida fans when he's saying stuff. It should be fun. That That's a code word, if you if you will, for like Steve Spurrier era football, the fun and gun. It's not okay just to drudge through and win some games with defense and a nice kicker. That's not Florida. Um, he mentioned Tim Tebow. That's another touchdown for this program. Uh, I thought he handled it about as well as you could. Um, I never cringed throughout the presser at all. I thought he did an excellent job. Um, so nothing but praise for him at this point. Yeah, I don't know if it was possible or I thought it was possible to get excited coming out of a press conference that's about firing your coach. But I left that press conference thinking the University of Florida from that press conference is in good hands. Scott Strickland is a man of detail. He's a man of understanding. He's a man that has a system. He's a man that ties to history. Uh, I mean, he, I couldn't think of how he could have done any better. I mean, he, he's mentioning your legends of your program. He's talking about what it was like to look at Florida from afar when it was occurring. And he talks about style, which, of course, is going to press all the buttons for me. Uh, but he showed me a lot of wisdom and how he not only deflected questions where he could have easily gone further into it to belittle McElwain, but he didn't. He took the high road and he said, hey, it's not just about wins and losses, but was facially expression telling you, there are some things that went on here that we did not like, and we're going to leave it at that. And uh, I thought he really painted a picture when he's talking about coaching searches and how certain news gets out at certain times, and that sort of hurts your ability to get a coach. And that was a very shrewd way to warn the media, hey, listen, if you guys want a good product here, be careful with what information you're releasing from so-and-so agent. Really, I thought, smart way to do that. Again, he knows that's a, that's a small chance of that happening, but he's showing them that I'm ahead of your playbook. I know exactly what you're thinking. I know exactly what you're trying to do as the media, and I know what I'm trying to do with my job. And ultimately, he used the golden phrase for me, Alan. It's not about him. It's about what's best for the University of Florida and their unique circumstance. And people say that, but with Steve, with Scott, you got the feeling that he 100% believes that, and that's his core value. So I'm very excited about watching how he handles this coaching search. I think Jeremy Foley was such a wild card. He never really knew what he was going to do. I get the feeling that Strickland is going to be very, very detailed and very task-oriented with the things that matter to him in his evaluation. And so it should be maybe a much different coaching search than what we've experienced in the past. Now with that, let's talk about some criteria here for the new coach. Let's let's spend the next several minutes in this segment looking at coaches that are probably on the list, uh, coaches that probably are not on the list, and coaches that could be on the list. We're going to try to cover just every single name you can really think of and kind of give you our initial reactions on this. But first, let's talk about the criteria. Alan, what kind of criteria should we be looking for in this coaching search? Well, a lesson that we've learned the hard way at the University of Florida is that you need to hire a previously engaged head coach. Like meaning we want someone with some experience, both Ron Zook and Muschamp, notable failures. And I think UF is not a place you want to cut your teeth. Um, it's too high profile. The mistakes are too obvious. Has to be a sitting head coach or someone with some head coaching experience. I would think we would look a little younger. We'd this needs to be, a, we want to have a long-term hire. And I think it has to be an offensive hire. It doesn't have to be. It probably should be 
unless someone has a very clear vision for how they want to resurrect this Florida offense. Because I don't know if this fan base can stand another defensive juggernaut shackled to a pathetic offense. Anything else that you would add or change in that? Yeah, my I think James's recipe for selecting a coach is A, they have to be fulfilling the three-year test. And this is a weird year because there's not a lot of guys that have the three-year test completed yet. But they would have to at least show signs that they have a chance of completing the three-year test of where they are going to show tremendous improvement at the current school that they are at within three years and that they have, in fact, been a head coach before. That's going to be step number one. Uh, step number two for me is they must be an offensive coach. I don't think that there is any merited reason to hire a defensive-minded coach at this point in time. Yes, I'm talking about Bob Stoops. We're going to get to him later on. Of course, he's different in a lot of scenarios, but uh, I think for the most part, the realistic targets we're going after, they all need to be offensive-minded coaches. It aligns with the style of the state of Florida. It aligns with what we need, given that the misery index at Florida almost exclusively has to do with offense. So I think you can apply both the three-year test, the head coaching rule, and then you could begin to get the finer details of the criteria, which is do they have ties to the Southeast? Have they recruited elite athletes before? Have they shown a propensity to recruit at an extremely high level? Those are the finishers. You got to have those things to basically complete that three-year test. Uh, and I think if you begin to look there, you'll start to see some guys rise to the top. Uh, with that being said, we talked about this earlier this year, Alan. My goal, if I'm an athletic director, is to find a guy that gives me the best expected value of return with the highest ceiling. I'm not looking for a floor guy yes. right now. I need the ceiling guy. It's okay for James's world as an athletic director to say, listen, I'm going to give you three years. If you hit the moon, awesome. You'll be here forever. And if you, if you win eight games a year, you'll be gone. You know, that's the thing. It doesn't take more than that to get there. We need the guy with tremendous upside. I'm okay taking risk, me, the athletic director, taking the risk to get the extreme upside. I do not see a situation where you're saying, we need to get a floor guy. Let's win nine games every single year. That's not the way this program is. It is what Urban said. You are always one coach away from winning a national championship at the University of Florida. That's just the way that it is. It's a mentality we should have. Therefore, the highest expected value or return on investment is to look at guys that are demonstrating an exceptional ability to potentially be able to reach a ceiling that is championship worthy, knowing the majority of them will not. And the odds are against that. I think probability wise, Alan, that gives the program the greatest chance of success. So I'm okay. Yeah. I'm okay if we get a guy out that doesn't, doesn't make it through three years. As long as that criteria is met, then you say, hey, that's all you can do. We can't see the future. We gave the right guy the shot. That's what I would want out of this. It certainly feels like Strickland is embodying a lot of those principles, maybe without saying them directly. And that and that's what I think the administration is looking for as well. They know we need to score points. They know we need to have a style that matches up. And I think they know, Alan, we need an articulate guy. And Mike White in the basketball world is yeah. a perfect, perfect example of this kind of guy. He was a head coach. He was at a tiny school. He was extremely well-respected. Uh, there were question marks about him because he's got to take a risk on him. And so far, the signs are pointing to him having a rocket, just a rocket ship trajectory to the top. And that could change. But again, a good hire there by Foley from all we can see now. Football must be the same way. I agree 100%. I mean, 
I love that you talked about the floor and the ceiling. We're going to hit that metric with some of these guys on the list. And I do think recruiting has to be part of the equation and the state of Florida has to be really, really important. And it's a tough ask for a guy to come in who hasn't, has no ties to the Southeast or the state of Florida. They can do it. If you're an elite recruiter, you'll figure it out. And everybody recruits Florida to some degree, but that's probably also a value. And this will be interesting here as we move forward. Jeremy Foley in the previous administration, one of their highest values was basically we're going to run a clean athletic department. If you have even a hint or whiff of NCAA scandal, they would not touch that coach. You never see them hiring a Bobby Petrino or somebody like that, or even a Rick Petino, because of what Jeremy Foley stepped into when he became athletic director. Florida was a mess of NCAA violations. This is a new administration. I don't know if they have those same values, but that is a little bit of a wild card of the situation. And with that, let's walk through the candidates in no particular order. And again, I want to just rephrase what we're doing in this exercise. This is going to be more of an off-the-cuff reaction from Alan and I, like, don't like, ceiling, floor. And what we're going to really do is spend this week giving you the names, and next week we're going to put them through the criteria we just talked about and give you some actual data and analysis on them. So we will refine the list next week and say, this guy's out, this guy's in, keep pursuing. And so you will essentially get like a coaching funnel done by Alan and I. And we'll also give you commentary on what we think the athletic department is doing. But we kind of want to give you an idea of how a coaching search would work from how the Gator Nation Football Podcast would handle it. And this would be the beginning. Here's your names. You're sitting at your desk on Monday. This just smacked you in the face. What are your thoughts? Excited, not excited? Pursue, don't pursue? Look into or don't look into? That's the game we're going to play. So first, we're going to start with the most obvious candidate. Uh, I think for a lot of people that follow college football, Scott Frost at UCF. Yeah, really exciting guy. If you're not familiar with his background, player at Nebraska, played in the NFL, offensive coordinator under Chip Kelly and then Mark Helfrich, and has taken UCF from, you know, a really dark place. They were 0 and 12 or 0 and 11, I guess, um, the year before he got there. And he has completely turned them around. Decent year last year, undefeated this year leading the country in most offensive categories and really, really hot name on probably every coaching list. Um, probably a lot to say about this guy. A couple of weeks ago, James, we were, there's a lot of people who just already penciled him in for Nebraska. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know yet. He chose to go to UCF because he likes the opportunity there. I think that's really intriguing. Uh, James, he does run a more of a spread style offense, which I know you're not a fan of. But as somebody pointed out, with FSU and Miami running very definitively pro-style offenses, that would leave Florida a little bit of a niche market there where they could take advantage of some of the guys that these other players aren't recruiting as highly, other schools aren't recruiting as highly. Really intriguing guy, very young, very young, but very intriguing. Yeah. Your initial thoughts. Yeah, I'm, I'm very high on Scott Frost. He does run a spread, but it's not the – the Urban Meyer or Dan Mullen spread per se. It's far more of a passing spread. Uh, and and he came from Oregon, but I think that Scott, and it's too early to know because I think one of the keys, Alan, is he hasn't gone against SEC defenses, which, which at the highest level changed the way those offenses work, which is why I tend to knock them. 
but I think for him, he's demonstrated an ability to be very flexible with the kind of plays and kind of offense he runs. It's very much the chess match and the leveling game that you and I talk about. And that's probably one of the best things about him. You cannot have the production he has at UCF as quickly as he's having it unless you understand the X's and O's and the game theory behind how you run an offense. And he does. Uh, He's also a younger guy. He's got a ton of buzz behind him. Of course, he played at Nebraska. And the big question mark now is, A, if you're Nebraska, you're probably prominently on the panic button because this is going to very quickly feel like an Urban Meyer to Notre Dame situation when we stole Urban from Notre Dame. This is going to feel like that to you if you're Nebraska. and you got a problem on your hands there. So keep your keep your eyes on what's going on uh, in that situation. But Scott Frost is in a great seat right now. He's absolutely a guy that fits the three-year test thus far. He, he's killing it on offense. He turned UCF from a team that was in the bottom, maybe 80th or 90th uh, in the country in offense, and just two years later, they're number one in most categories. Now, he hasn't played against the top-level schedule. There are, of course, still question marks for Scott Frost, but again, Almost all of these guys are going to have their own question marks. You're picking which one you think yeah. has sort of an atmospheric loop. And so far, Scott Frost is a guy I think that definitely merits the ceiling uh, consideration of we don't know how high it is, but it looks like it could be high. So the second guy, maybe the most obvious choice, a guy I actually posted about on social media this past week is sort of like the guy I'm most nervous about getting the job, uh, Dan Mullen of Mississippi State. Yeah, so former offensive coordinator for the Gators under Urban Meyer, not well loved while he was here, despite the success we were having. Took a lot of criticism. I know the previous administration, or at least there's rumors that Jeremy Foley was not a big fan of his. Obviously, Scott Strickland, former Mississippi State athletic director, has ties there. So that's why people are linking this so closely and so obviously. Dan Mullen has been really successful at a place and with like Mississippi state, which is really hard to be successful at. He's maybe their most successful coach ever. I mean, to win consistently there is super hard. And so hats off and hats off to him for that. I can't imagine he would be a spectacular failure at Florida. If you're looking for a floor guy, this is it. I I think he would, there's almost no chance he's going to come out and like lay an egg and we're going to go four and eight. But I think you would agree with me on this, James. Not nearly as high of a ceiling as you would like. He's still not that old, despite his length of time as being a head coach. But yes, I'm not sure that I would like to hand him the keys to this car. And I'm I'm a little nervous that we're moving down that path a little more quickly than I would like. I'm sure that I definitely do not want to hand him the keys to the car. <laughs> and And I think I can say this in one statement, and both of these things can be true. Dan Mullen is a great football coach. What he's doing at Mississippi State is fantastic. Dan Mullen is not the coach I want at the University of Florida. I don't know what his ceiling is. I don't think that you can say what it is, judging by what he's done at Mississippi State. But the fact that he is still at Mississippi State, and he has interviewed for other jobs. I mean, as far as we know, he definitely has. There's something about Dan Mullen that leads me to believe he doesn't have that, that next-level gear. Uh, And I think he's a consistent winning football coach. I think he's a very solid human being. I think he would represent the university very, very well. And what scares me the most is I think Strickland knows all of these things. I think Strickland can say he's an offensive coach. Although, again, I view his offense as very sort of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, depending on personnel. He has developed Dak Prescott, who is 
one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL early on out of that system. Uh, the guy, you could say a lot of great things about him, but I, I learned in my life to sort of weigh heavily on my initial impression of a candidate. And I don't have an excited feeling. And therefore, no. I would have to go through the vetting process, which I will this week, and see if I can't change that. It's wise not to make decisions based upon emotion, but it's also wise to pay attention to your own emotional style meter. And if it's screaming at you, you should really make sure the evidence isn't totally contradicting your emotions before you make a move. And I will do that this week and I will come back next week and I will give you a rendering. But right now, that's the one that makes me the most nervous because if he comes in, I'm thinking, oh, really not that excited. Next, no. next guy up is the guy that people are excited about. And I'm a little surprised by this one. I'll tell you why in a second, but it's Mike Norvell at Memphis. There's a lot of Gator fans that are very excited. There's a lot of a lot of ruminations that he's like maybe the top candidate on the list. What do you think about Mike? Interesting. Feels like he's a, it's a little too early for him. Only been in Memphis for two years following a guy we'll get to in a minute, Justin Fuente, who really turned that program around. But they're scoring a lot of points, have a couple good wins this year. He's very young. He's even younger than Frost, I believe. So still a guy whose arrow is pointing up. I don't know that we have enough information. It, this would be a major reach, at least on at first blush. Not to say he couldn't do it. It could be amazing, but it feels really early on him. Yeah, this doesn't move the meter for me, and, and I'll tell you the simple reason why. He went 8-5 and five his first year taking over for Fuente. Fuente did a phenomenal job at Memphis. That was a little bit of a drop-off, but the roster kind of turned over. This year he is, I think, 6 or 7-1. and one. The problem is his one loss is a 40-13 to 13 drubbing to Scott Frost UCF. So you say to yourself, yeah, you say to yourself, Frost is continuing to show you the rocket ship, right? If you like Mike Norvell, you have to like Frost more, according to the litmus test that I employ. You just have to. And that's another feather in the cap for Frost, by the way, is that he's pounding a coach who's highly looked after, and they're both in year two. So to me, that's a major red flag. Uh, because again, at the University of Florida, you want a guy that doesn't have a question like that that you have to answer. And the question you have to answer is, why is a guy that took over at a well-stocked Memphis program by a guy in Fuente who's an exceptional coach getting blasted by Frost when they're both in year two? It's a question mark. I'm not saying he's bad. I think what you said right. is correct. It's too early. He's doing nice things at Memphis. He's got them playing good football this year. They're scoring a lot of points. But to give him the keys to Florida... He has not had the tremendous atmospheric loop you'd have to have. If he had beaten Frost 40-13, to 13, I flipped the script. And now I said that Mike Norvell would be the guy that would have more, more behind him than Frost does. But I don't think that's the case for me right now. Again, this is a candidate that merits further consideration. Merits further consideration. We'll look more into him. But that's my initial red flag on Mike Norvell at this moment. All right, next up, a guy. Yeah, that, yeah go ahead. Just to say that, yeah, we, there's, this guy's a pretty unknown commodity. And who knows even what happened in that game? Maybe their starting quarterback went down. Maybe they turned the ball over six times. Who knows? But yeah, that's definitely a red flag. He's a guy I'm intrigued by, but want to look into a lot more. Yes, and that's kind of the thought. Cautious on him. All right, a guy that we've chronicled on the show before, a guy that I just absolutely love, Mike Gundy. <laughs> the mullet. The mullet. Bring the mullet to Gainesville, right? Mike Gundy, Oklahoma State. If you don't know, Mike Gundy campaigned, I'm not going to say openly, but almost basically openly, the last time Florida had an opening for the job, didn't wind up getting it. 
apparently him and Boone Pickens, who's the biggest booster Oklahoma State, really do not like each other. And so that's sort of the narrative. And the thought would be if he was interested before, why would he not be interested here again? Alan, your thoughts? Yeah, I don't know. I go up and down on Mike Gundy. He's had a lot of success at Oklahoma State, which isn't, you know, a natural powerhouse. So I think there is room for him to, you know, keep moving up higher. He's been a head coach for a long time, been a consistent, proven winner. Um, I don't know. I don't, there's something about him that maybe it goes back to the I'm a man, I'm 40 thing. There's something about him that I don't love. It's also crazy that he's had a mullet the last couple of years. I enjoy it from a distance. I don't know how much I would enjoy that up close. There's something about him that that makes me apprehensive, um, but I'm not totally sure why. What about you? I love Mike Gundy because of Mike Gundy doing the things Mike Gundy does. And that's, <laughs> that's kind of what you're getting at is, man, he's super fun and you love the guy. But then when you think about is he your head coach, wait a minute, is this the guy that's going to beat Nick Saban every year? Which is a very good litmus test to employ. I think he has the gumption to do it. That's part of it. He has the swagger to do it, which is step one. You got you got to have your own personality to beat a guy like Nick Saban. He doesn't come from the Saban tree, which is nice. Uh, I think the question marks with him are, can he win the big game? Can he win multiple big games in a season? And the answer thus far has been no. Uh, but like what you said, Alan, is he's done something that nobody's done in Oklahoma State. They are a perennial 10-win team, top 15, just almost without hesitation. That's what he's done at that program. The question you have to ask yourself is, what would he do at a better program? with more resources and far more national appeal than Oklahoma State? It's a very good question to ask. And for that reason, I think Mike Gundy is your best floor candidate. If you say that you want Dan Mullen, I say to you, you should want Mike Gundy. Mike Gundy, mm-hmm. to me, is a better version of Dan Mullen. And and I think that is my sort of thought on Mike. He's the best of the proven coaches that have been around for a while, that have not proven to be elite. But give you something that that is interesting. And uh, if you want a floor guy, I think you want Mike Gundy. And look, let's put it this way. Any guy that grows a mullet that beautiful because he got in a debate with his son about what a mullet should look like is a dude that's entertaining on Saturdays. So for no other reason, he'd keep us all very, very entertained. He's an articulate guy. I think he's very sharp. He runs a wonderful offense. But like you said, Alan, the question marks remain as to whether or not he could win a national title. But, 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 but. Don't sleep on the fact that Oklahoma State is not a major program. There are not kids putting their heads in the pillow dreaming of going to Oklahoma State. He is Oklahoma State. And that's a very, very impressive accomplishment of what he has done there. All right. Willie Taggart, a guy that was at USF lighting up the scoreboard last year. That offense has taken a significant step back this year, which is a good sign for Willie. Currently the coach of Oregon, not having a great season this year at Oregon. It's year one, though. So again, year one, those are going to be your most mixed years. And somehow after half a year in Oregon is being linked to the Florida job already, which kind of seems a little manic to me, Alan, but let's consider him because he's getting a lot of he's getting a lot of attention here. Willie Taggart as Florida's next head coach. Yeah, a guy who is pegged as a future star. Some people refer to him as the third Harbaugh brother, which I know you would like. Um did good things at USF. You know, was a real hot candidate and took that Oregon job. It would make me concerned if someone left a job like Oregon after one year. I don't know. 
he's a big question mark to me. I feel like he could be a home run or he could be a, just a total bust, huge amount of variance with this guy. Like you said, I know you're okay with that, but feels like there's safer candidates on the list for me right now, at least at this point. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head for me is that you look at ceiling, but you also have to look at downside. And uh, as an investor, if I'm going to plot this guy on a risk reward chart, I can do better. There's guys that offer me the same ceiling, but they offer me a much higher floor. And you're always going to make that trade. And so that's not to say that he can't become something spectacular. But at this point in time, you also just have a lot of questions about the, the Oregon situation. I'm not sure what kind of person you are. If you take a contract at a major school like Oregon and you leave a year later, I'm not sure what that says about you. Uh, maybe you hate the weather. You hate what's going on out there. But I, there's something about that I wouldn't like. That doesn't feel right to me. Um, it's not a it's not a school you leave. It's not UCF where UCF knows that, hey, this is a leapfrog spot. I, something about that wouldn't feel right. So I think that's also weighing in my decision right now, Alan, is it just wouldn't necessarily wouldn't be what I'm feeling. And I also have a feeling that Taggart is more offensive coach, Alan, than he is head coach right now. And maybe he'll figure that out. But I think at his stops, he's been a phenomenal offensive guy. He's a rah-rah guy. The players get excited about him. But I'm not sure if he's the detailed, consummate sort of wizard that you want pulling all the strings. All right, this is your guy. Now, I want to give public credit to you, Alan. For multiple years in this podcast, you have sort of hit home runs with guys that I'll think in the beginning of a season like, <laughs> who even is this guy? I'm vaguely familiar with who he is, and you're sort of riding him on how high you are. I don't know what you read or what you see or how you do it, but Matt Campbell of Iowa State is a guy in the preseason that you mentioned. That, that, how? I don't even know. I mean, he was successful at Toledo, but Matt Campbell <laughs> at, beats TCU, has had really a legendary season in Iowa State. Maybe their best season ever already, and it's not even over yet making a lot of waves. The knock on him, of course, is that he has, has zero, and I mean zero, ties to the South. Of course, neither did Urban Meyer, right? And he worked under Urban Meyer, so there's some intriguing parallels there. What are your thoughts on Matt Campbell? Obviously, love him as a head coach. Still very early, obviously, in his tenure as a guy at Iowa State, but he's doing things at, things at Iowa State that nobody does, really. Those are two huge wins, and obviously – there's a lot you'd want to more you'd want to see, but ultimately if you're taking a chance on a guy, this is a guy I would like to take a chance on seems to understand that, you know, he's should do what is best with his available resources. So I don't know if you can pin a style to him, which is both kind of cool and a little disconcerting because I'm not sure you know exactly what you're going to get with him. That's also a potential strength. Um, he does carry with him seemingly at this point a rather large buyout that might be prohibitive. We'll see. Sometimes those things get washed away. I'm very intrigued by this guy. I, obviously, I like him a lot. The no recruiting ties to Florida or to the Southeast is very disconcerting. We don't know what kind of job he would do as a recruiter, even at Iowa State. And that's an almost impossible place to recruit to. Could he be a great recruiter? Maybe we have no idea. So that's a major uh, yellow flag. Yeah. And that's the bottom of that, that kind of three prong test we talked about at the top of the segment that he doesn't have. And so you look at the other candidates and say, well, maybe I can get some information on them. I cannot on Matt Campbell. I think what he has proven is that he's a tremendous 
X's and O's coach. And and in that vein, he feels a lot like Mike White. Uh, Mike White was, can he recruit at Florida? You had zero idea if he could or couldn't. Um, he really kind of put together an interesting team when he was at Louisiana, uh, Lafayette, or wherever he was, now that I'm blanking because he's just our coach. <laughs> Louisiana but, Tech. Yeah, Tech. I knew it wasn't Lafayette, right? But uh, <laughs> he comes over here and he does it. You didn't know. It was the biggest question mark on him. And that would be the question on Matt Campbell. I don't think at this point in time anybody can deny what kind of football coach this guy is. And he's a guy that absolutely uh, we should be talking to. And he will go through you know, the Allen and James vetting process here because he's having a spectacular year two, even though he's got two losses. You can't think of really a better year two under the three-year test than what he's showing there. So keep an eye on him. He's a candidate that gets mentioned, but the recruiting was something to consider. Uh, Justin Fuente, hot name. From my guy to your guy. Yeah, hot name here, Justin Fuente. This is one of my favorite guys. He was at Memphis before, doing an exemplary job at Virginia Tech in year two there, strongly passing the the three-year test. Again, only two years. And I think you guys are all noticing a theme here. This is a weird year. If you waited another year, you'd have a lot more clarity. But we're sort of dealt the hand we're dealt, and we don't have perfect information this season. Uh, we're, we're halfway in these guys' early tenures. But Fuente, known as an, a really, really good coach, and I think he's really building a buzz at Virginia Tech. There's no one has any idea if he'd want to leave there. You can win at Virginia Tech. But since he's being talked about, we'll talk about him. What are your thoughts on Fuente? Yeah, all the information out there is that he's in a perfect spot at Virginia Tech and a perfect fit. I don't know exactly what that means because um, I'm not a Virginia Tech person. So at least the buzz is that it'd be hard to get him out of there. Now, yeah, I think you have to listen if a place like Florida calls. And I want to talk later, James, about just how good of a job this is still. So, you know, pin that for later. But I don't know. It seems to be the feeling around the interwebs is that it would be hard to get him out of there. But he's definitely a guy I would like to take a deeper look at really good coach. Yeah. Fuente is a great, great coach. Maybe the top of the list of what we're talking about right now with regards to his trajectory with what he's yes. doing at Vautech and how he coaches that team and how well they play and how well he handles everything and what he accomplished at Memphis. Tremendous resume. It just doesn't feel likely at all to me that he's going to leave there. And I'll tell you why he was the rising star when he took the Virginia tech job and he sort of quietly took that job. I happen to think there was a reason he did that. I could be wrong. We're going to figure it out very shortly here as to whether or not there's rumors that are true that he wants to maybe pursue a job like Florida. But I think he chose that on purpose for for more reasons than just this was the job that was offered to him. So we'll see how that one shakes out. Charlie Strong, a candidate whose star was was oh, just friend. so high. So many Florida fans wanted him to be the coach at one point in time. How do you feel about him now? Well, if we rewound this by three years and he was coming off Louisville, I think he would be the obvious guy and it would just be a slam dunk and it would, we wouldn't even really have this conversation. But the fact that he flamed out so spectacularly at Texas, I don't know if you can give him another high profile job so soon. He's only in year one at USF. I think he's a good dude. He's a good football coach, good character. I don't know that you want to, He's not a guy who does well in the spotlight, I think, with media and stuff. I think that's part of the problem with that Texas that's only going to be accentuated at Florida or at least as difficult at Florida. I don't know. I, I just don't think he's a real candidate unless everybody else in this list says no, maybe. Yeah, this guy's off my list. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't pass the metrics of the test. A, a, a fantastic failure of the three-year test at Texas. A, a very underwhelming year at USF this year. They've taken a step back. 
he's a great defensive coordinator and a guy that you want on your staff. I, I think as a head coach, he succeeded at a school where everyone succeeds thus far in Louisville. It's kind of a weird thing, really, what Louisville does there. But not a guy, I think, that should be considered for this job. I think the lights have been too bright for him at this level, and he would have to prove at USF that he can maintain a high, high level of success there uh, and sort of give them an identity as a head coach, which I think may be the biggest knock on him is he doesn't really have an identity. His teams don't play with an identity, and, and that's something you need. All right. Dino Babers, Syracuse's head coach, tremendous results, beat Clemson this year, the first thing to beat him in like a million games seemingly, had a lot of competitive results against good teams and against a difficult schedule, uh, very offensive-minded guy, they score a ton of points, how do you feel about him? Yeah, I don't know, I, I'm intrigued by him, um, it comes from that air raid coaching tree, has done some good things at Syracuse, which is not the easiest place to win. Obviously, that Clemson result is a huge feather in his cap. A lot of question marks. No ties to the Southeast or Florida. Have no idea whether he can be a consistent winner. He's actually older. I think he's in his mid fifties than what he. If you look at him, you would think this guy's like you know forty one. But that's a knock against him. He is an offensive guy. You know, we, we didn't even mention that Charlie Strong was a defensive guy because we barely gave him much uh, credence there. I don't know. Dino Babers is, I would, I don't know. It, it feels way too early for him to take a job like Florida, but I think he could do well here. Obviously, I think we'd be offensively successful, but I don't know about the rest of the stuff. Yeah, too early to know what his head coaching profile is like. He does have a great win against Clemson, but coaches that are not elite or trending towards elite can have big upsets like that. And I like what he's doing there, but not ready, I think, for this conversation yet. Jeff Brom, a guy that was getting a lot of press, a lot, a lot of press really early on in this season. It's calmed down a little bit. They've had a few mixed results this year, but what do you think yeah. about Jeff? Yeah, I think you nailed that. Um, very intrigued by him. Did well at his previous stop. Offensive guy, still a young guy. Purdue's a really tough place to win. And I think you're hoping that his trajectory would be a little more up. They've lost some games this year that if you were really moving forward at a place like Purdue that you probably would have won. So his star is not fading, but he's not the shooting star that a guy like Frost is. Um, very interesting head coaching candidate. Again, like I feel like we're catching all these guys in year two, and I would love to be in the middle of year three with them. Yeah, Jeff Brom is a guy that really intrigues me. He's got a tremendously great, I think, offensive style in mind. I love his philosophy. I like a lot of what he puts on film. I need another year on him, and that's why it's a three-year test and not a two-year test. We could do the same show next year, and it could be totally different. He's a guy that I would put like on the high, high watch list, but it's too soon for me, given what you just mentioned, to bring him into this Florida job. If all these other candidates went away, He's, I think, in that in that second-ish, third-tier-ish list, and he's high up there. I think he's shown a lot of promise. And I think, again, if you look at film, he really understands what he's doing. Uh, so so that's sort of the, the note on him. But I think that wouldn't be – you'd have to be nine or ten names down the list, I think, by the time you get to Brahms' name. But again, he could do great things there at Purdue. He needs another year. It's just too hard, as you mentioned, Alan, to look at his star right now and feel tremendous confidence that he would come turn things around. All right, a guy that generated white-hot press again earlier this year, DJ Durkin of Maryland, former, of course, Gator coach. 
a guy that players rave about, a guy that a lot of my friends that played under DJ Durkin rave about. They love this guy. They think he's the next big star. Weird year at Maryland, really not his fault. They lose their starting quarterback and their backup quarterback. At times, they even lost their third-string quarterback. Just a bunch of adverse circumstances, yet they remain competitive and they keep winning games. Uh, so he's, I think, definitely on the rise. But what are your thoughts on him? I like him a lot. I think he's going to be successful. He's in a really tough spot. That Big Ten East was where all the powerhouses live. Michigan, Penn State, Ohio State, Michigan State. Um, man, again, I would love a little more info on him. But I don't think you can sell him because he is a defensive coach. And now if he were like lighting up the world at Maryland and they knocked off Penn State and Michigan and everything, you'd be like, well, who cares? This guy's freaking awesome. But I feel like Florida fans would be like, no, not another defensive coach. So I just don't know if you can sell that to our fan base. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Durkin's got a great personality. People love that guy. And if you're going to get a defensive coach, that's the kind of one you want. But where we are right now and where he is right now in his career, it's it's not the right time and the right fit. If you fast forwarded three more years, it's very possible that it would be the right time and the right fit. But I think right now at this point in time, what you said and kind of where he is, uh, doesn't make sense. And that'll make a lot of Maryland fans happy because they love that guy. And I think for good reason. I think he's definitely a guy you keep an eye on. All right, we've gone all the way down this list. And kind of on purpose, we saved this name for, for near the bottom of the <laughs> of the candidate list that has a chance. Because let's face it, if you followed Gator hiring searches, period, since you've been a Gator fan, this guy <laughs> has been a part of them. He is none other than Bob Stoops, the now-retired curiously retired Oklahoma coach. He's going to get a lot of press because he always does. Alan, what are the thoughts on Bob as a head coach? Is it even realistic? Is this guy coming out of retirement? Should he be talked to? What do you got? I don't know. I mean, maybe the most intriguing name on the list just because of who he is and his stature has won a national championship. Um, the reason he's always linked to Florida because he was a defensive coordinator under Spurrier on the 96 title team. Still a decently young guy. I think he's only 51. You know, Oklahoma was always near the top. He's an extremely successful coach by any measure. The only reason I would even put him on this list, because he has retired, is maybe he says, this was a massive mistake. I must be a football coach. And, oh, here, look, the University of Florida job that they always offer me. I don't, I don't even know how I would feel if we hired him. I mean, certainly he could win big here. But I could also see him being gone in two years because he retires or we get sick of him really quickly. I don't know. It's, I, I don't think it's a realistic possibility. But I felt like we had to include him on the list just because his name is going to be on there. Yeah, and therein lies the rub. Is This is an elite coach. This is a guy that smashed a three-year test. He's an elite football coach. He can win with everyone, against everyone. And I know that he hasn't had all the results Oklahoma fans wanted, but go look at his resume. This guy is an elite coach. You have to contact him, and you have to sit in front of him, and you have to gauge his passion level. And if he says to you he's interested and he's highly passionate about it and he wants to get into it, you listen. And as example, you can look at Urban Meyer. He's obviously a much younger version, much different story here, and what Ohio State did, and he's showing no signs of stopping at Ohio State. Uh, after a very curious ending at Florida. And so I think you have to contact him because of who he is and what he does. But you also have to be very concerned, Alan, 
about what you said, which is that how serious is he about this? At the first stroke of adversity, is he just tapping out because he already has? And he really seems very serious about being retired. I would be surprised if he doesn't quash this rumor very quickly. That's my gut feeling on this one. Let's move to three more speculative candidates, but some that are getting names. I think Chad, not Chad, Chris Doring's favorite guy, as he mentioned on ESPN multiple times yesterday, is the former Clemson offensive coordinator and current head coach at SMU, Chad Morris. Yeah, offensive guy, a lifelong Texas guy. It's hard to see him leaving the state of Texas is where he always gets linked to former like high school coach there i think older than you think as well he's already in his 50s so even though he's not been a head coach for a long time took him a while to get there um i don't think he's all that high up on the list but you see him out there a little bit not all that intriguing but worth a little bit worth the due diligence probably yeah not an intriguing guy for me i think he gets a lot of credit for recruiting some excellent players there to clemson but uh, Clemson's weird with recruiting a profile that before they don't really pull in top five classes, but they pull in guys that are really, really good. And I think he gets credit for being an identifier of these guys that are really good, uh, which is nice. And at SMU, he's off to a, a solid start, but nothing spectacular here. Nothing that would excite the fan base. Not a name anybody knows uh, really particularly. Uh, he wouldn't be a guy that would merit much consideration for me. This would be like a panic mode, like you're way down your list and you're you're looking for someone. There's much, much better candidates, I think, ahead of him. And also, you mentioned age-wise. I think Florida, it's in their best interest to hire a guy who's in his mid to late 30s to early to mid 40s. That seems to be an ideal spot for us to go with this hire. Uh, I think that while age isn't everything, it certainly isn't. You know, we're talking about Bob Stoops here. He doesn't seem to fit the bill for me. Brent Venables, the Clemson defensive coordinator, he's also getting some mention here. I'm going to toss out right away these defensive coordinator. He's a big-time name. He's one of those sexy defensive coordinators, if you will, but not a guy that I want to hire, uh, not a guy that I would I would give much consideration to if I'm, if I'm the AD. How about you? Yeah, same. If you were going to hire a defensive coordinator, I guess this would be the guy, but doesn't really meet any of the qualifications. All right, here's the guy that I've been talking about that I would interview, and I'll tell you why in a second, but Joe Moorhead, Penn State's offensive coordinator, is squeezing out tremendous amount of production on that team. He was the head coach of Fordham, of course, a much smaller school where he turned them around drastically. He's a very, very sharp guy. Uh, I think that he could potentially be a really excellent head coach. He's a super wild card. I don't think you hire him uh, for this job or any big job quite yet, although he's going to get mentioned. He's going to probably take a more middling job to prove himself, but I interview him and I'll tell you why, maybe in secret. This guy is one of the best offensive minds in college football. You want to hear what he says and then compare what he says to what other guys are telling you. Scott Frost, Dan Mullen, Mike Gundy, Willie Taggart, etc. And get a gauge. It's just a barometer. It's a thought. It's a feeling. Who's articulate? Who knows why they're doing what they're doing? Who do I think could be successful here? And I think he's like a good gatekeeper gauge to kind of maybe give you insight into other offensive minds if you're an athletic director. Yeah, agreed. I it's hard to imagine. We talked about you have to hire a sitting head coach, and weirdly, he has kind of been a head coach. The move from Fordham to Penn State, I would at least look at him. Again, a lot of guys I would probably rather hire than him, but very, like you said, innovative offensive mind. So um, worth at least a mention there because he has had some, his, is having so much success at Penn State. All right. So, I'll have to say, this is a much deeper and more promising list than the last time Florida was hiring a coach. 
um, we looked at, I think, every sitting, you know, FBS, no, excuse me, when I have every FBS, every Power 5 head coach last time. We were in the place for Florida to hire a coach. And Jim McElwain was really the only one that I thought met a lot of our criteria. Not everyone, but was at least in the ballpark. So I think a much deeper bench this time. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And that's kind of the funny thing is people are saying, well, who do you want? Who out there is better than Jim McElwain? Well, hopefully from just listening to this initial candidate list, and we've got more guys to go through on the what Alan writes as the probably to definitely not hiring list. <laughs> uh, this is a much deeper talent pool. It's just it's a year early. If you could fast forward one more year, you probably get a lot more data. With that being said, some of these guys could be scooped up especially because the SEC could have five or six openings on their own. And a lot of these guys will be candidates for all those jobs. So maybe it's just the right time and you've got to pick wisely. All right, let's jump into the, as James said, the probably to definitely not hiring list. So you'll see these names, at least some of them on a lot of lists. Um, But for reasons that we'll get into here and we'll not grind these guys into the ground, but that I doubt Florida would hire. Number one, Chip Kelly. James, uh, a very famous coach, super high profile. Why wouldn't we hire him? Or maybe why would we? Well, we wouldn't hire him because he doesn't want to coach college football. I mean, it's well it's well known that he hates recruiting and that he really hates almost everything that has to do with college football, <laughs> which is funny because he's really, really good. In the college game, of course, he's he's had a you know a small scandal behind him, so that goes to what you mentioned, Alan, about uh, you know would Foley hire a guy like Chip Kelly? Probably not. You know, there's some violations on his record. Uh, Chip Kelly seems just bent on trying to get back into the NFL. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to happen, given how poorly he's done there. I just would have to really question his passion uh, about wanting to coach college football. And again, this is a guy you absolutely reach out to and you 100% say, listen, if you want to talk, we are going to talk. Then you have a very direct conversation with him and you gauge where he's at because this guy would be tremendously successful at Florida. And he does not run an offense I like, but I happen to hope and think that the lessons he's learned from the NFL would allow him to combine his Oregon spread offense with a more NFL pass style spread offense. In that case, that'd be a home run. But this is absolutely a guy you interview if he's willing to interview. But there is a lot of reason to be cautious as you proceeded forward with such an interview. Yeah, if we're talking about personality as well, this is a tough guy to work with. I think he's made enemies at every spot that he's been at. Not a really popular guy with people that he works with. So after coming off a guy like McElwain, I don't know that you could stomach another high. Now, Chip Kelly is high profile enough that you maybe just look the other way. Um, but for all the reasons you mentioned, and people always peg him as a West Coast guy. I don't know if he's an SEC fit. I mean, he is certainly a ceiling guy. He could rip the roof off the place, and I could see him going head-to-head with a guy like Nick, against a guy like Nick Saban. But just doesn't seem to be in the cards. Too many issues. All right, next up, Bobby Petrino who's lost a lot this year, so maybe his star is dimming, but too many problems, yes? Yeah, too many problems, and I think Arkansas really wants him back. And I'm not kidding. I think they're really going to go after him. <laughs> and so maybe he winds up Yeah, maybe he winds up back there and it, he doesn't get on a motorcycle with a young Koa, and who knows. But uh, no, this is a bad fit for Florida. This is the guy that's done a lot of other character issues. Both these guys, Chip Kelly and Petrino, are not really great guys with the way they've handled 
a lot of facets in their life. And, and it, Strickland strikes me as a guy who wants a great guy to be the next head coach, which I totally am on board with. I really want to like our next coach as a coach and as a person. And Bobby Petrino, not that kind of guy for me. All right. The man who has been linked to every coaching job in America, John Gruden. I really have to believe John Gruden when he says he doesn't want to coach and no one listens to him because there's so many years now of him not wanting to coach. And look, you can't pay the man any amount of money to pull him out of it. He's already the highest paid employee at ESPN. He gets paid multi-million dollar contracts each year to broadcast football games. He messes around and moonlights as an offensive coordinator slash play caller for a high school team in his local area in, in Tampa. The guy's happy as can be. I mean, he loves what he's doing. He's got no pressure, no stress. Would he be exciting? Absolutely. Do I love John Gruden? Absolutely. Is Tennessee wishing for the 10th year in a row that he's coming to them? Absolutely. I just, I'll believe it when I see it, but I think at some point in time, you got to believe a guy. And you've gone this far now where he hasn't coached again. I don't, I mean, maybe he gets a change of heart, but I don't think he's realistic. Would I take him? Yeah. Again, I'm interviewing him. Absolutely. If he says he wants to talk, I will talk. But this one seems really unlikely. Agreed, for all the reasons you just said. The pirate himself, Mike Leach. Oh, would I love to have Mike Leach as head coach. (laughs) Mike Leach is so freaking entertaining to me. And look, I love the air raid. He's like one of the fathers of the air raid, although not technically, but he kind of is now in the modern era. He's so weird, but so great. Uh, I think he would just kill it at Florida. I, I mean, I can't imagine how sick it would be in the state of Florida with the athletes he would have to run that offense. What he's doing at Washington State is amazing. We've talked a lot about him before. The question marks are the same as Mike Gundy. He doesn't win the biggest games. He hasn't put together a full season. Uh, but what he's done at Texas Tech and in Washington State, you should not sneeze at that. That is that is a top, top level guy. He's clearly the top of your second tier kind of guy. And he's right there with with Mike Gundy. Mike Gundy is more consistent than Mike Leach. I think if you make the argument for Mike Leach, you have to argue Mike Gundy's a better version of him. But man, Mike Leach is fun. Uh, I, I don't think he's coming to Florida. He's, he's That doesn't seem like a fit. I think he's probably content up there at Washington State where he is in his life anyway. Uh, but, you know, a fun name to mention. A lot of Gator fans would love it. I, I would love it too for what it's worth. But you have the question marks of whether or not he can be elite and what his true ceiling is. Yeah, it would be entertaining to say the least. He seems to thrive in backwater places like Pullman and Lubbock. It's hard to imagine him in a pressure cooker like the SEC East. Um, and for as great as those teams are, they are wildly inconsistent. I think he'd give Gator fans a heart attack. Can't Im- actually imagine him being our head coach. <laughs> like I said, it would definitely provide a lot of fodder for the podcast. So it'd be interesting on that end, but I don't know about that. Les Miles. Do you want to hire Les Miles, James? I can't even believe you put this on the list. In fact, I was going to ask you, who, who, where did you hear this from? No, that's absurd. I can't. No, I'm not. I can't even give it more discussion than that. I would. Oh man, I would. I maybe I'd quit the podcast. Maybe I would never go to a game again. It would be a massively <laughs> regressive scenario for a guy that wants to run the ball 85 times a game and run the world's dumbest toss play. And and no, no, I can't do it. Don't do it to me, Alan. Why is he on the list for real? I saw him on a list somewhere. I thought it'd be fun to say why we're not hiring him. All right, James Franklin. <laughs> oh, an excellent coach. Oh, James Franklin. Can he bring Joe Moorhead? Because I'm in. Uh, yeah, James Franklin, obviously phenomenal. Bad result against Ohio State this past weekend. They should have won that game, but 
he's a shooting star right now at Penn State. He's also not going anywhere. I love people bring this guy up like he's going to leave. Like, guys, stop being crazy. Don't don't be the Alabama fans, or please actually don't be the Texas fans who think they're going to get everyone in the world as their head coach every single year. They're going to pull, you know, Bill Belichick from the Patriots and bring him on. It ain't happening. James Franklin's not leaving. It's not even worth talking about. He's a phenomenal coach. Yes, I would take him. Yes, I would interview him. He's not going anywhere. That's just the reality of it. All right, James, there's a certain man who's having a lot of success in South Florida. The one, the only, Lane Kiffin. Joey Freshwater. Oh, (laughs) my gosh. Could you imagine (laughs) Joey Freshwater roaming the bars of Gainesville, Florida? If you don't know what that means, Google Joey Freshwater. You will be in for a 10 or 15-minute entertainment ride as you read about Joey Freshwater. But... You know, he posted on his Twitter account, as only Lane Kiffin can do when we fired McElwain, a long, hmm, followed by like a football emoji and a fire, and then a little note that said like, better things are coming. Nobody knows what that means. I'm not even sure Lane Kiffin knows what that means, but he's five and three. He's having a great time down there in South Florida, I'm sure. And no way is this Strickland and Lane Kiffin, I'm sure, there's not a single planet those two guys get along together in just by watching them both talk. So this is not happening. If you're a Florida fan who wants this to happen, I have to question your motives. Yeah, you mentioned quitting. If we hired Lane Kiffin, I might actually quit. Not just the podcast, but my I might resign my Florida fandom until he leaves. This guy's been a dumpster fire everywhere. He's not a serious candidate, but... It's an apocalyptic option for me. Um, just to, just wanted to like get in my soapbox a little bit about how much I dislike Lane Kiffin. Okay, that's a lot of names. A lot of guys we might hire. A lot of guys we probably won't. I'm sure we missed a few names. So if we did, send us a message, ask us about it. All right, we've got a really cool guest, former athletic director at UF, Bill Carr. He's going to give us some insight into the process, what it's like to hire and fire a coach. Let's go ahead and get to that. I'm very excited to welcome to the show Bill Carr. He's the former athletic director at the University of Florida in the early 80s, also at Houston after that. He played for Florida. He's been on this very show before. He's a good friend of mine, and he's currently the founder of Carr & Associates, which is a national sports consultancy company, which in fact helps athletic departments do a variety of things, and one of those is, is hire coaches and handle coaching searches. Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Appreciate the invitation. Now, I know that there's some things that you may not be able to talk about directly, so feel free to handle these questions as you want. Uh, What are your thoughts on this past week with McIlwain getting fired? In particular, this is a weird situation. It's not often you see this, how quickly this escalated. Sort of give us some insight into this. Well, first, I have to give a disclaimer as to... uh, the fact that I, I do not know any specifics uh, with regard to uh, the circumstances at the University of Florida. I'm not uh, I'm not involved with the program other than as an alum and a supportive individual for the program uh, psychologically and financially. I'm a Gator booster, et cetera, have tickets and all those kind of things. But uh, I really don't know precisely what's going on and uh, and uh, don't don't attempt to become aware of those things. Uh, but I do have a lot of information that comes to me from people that call or ask or make comments or something. But um, 
you know, it's just the business. I mean, people are people are hired and people are dismissed, and the the the, uh, the road keeps going. You know, the the process continues. It's uh, it's always unfortunate when this kind of change occurs uh, in the mid season, but sometimes that's what that's what needs to happen. And uh, the the uh, university has made that decision, and and we support their uh, their judgment. Let me ask, what is it like being Scott Strickland this past week? Well, I think as an athletic director or anyone who's in a position where you make decisions that affect people's lives and you yourself are a highly principled individual wanting to be fair and reasonable and uh, deliberate in how you go about your duties, you don't want to be whimsical uh, or too spontaneous in the sense of uh, not uh, giving proper thought to what occurs, the ramifications thereof on people's lives. Uh, you, you know, you, you want to be you want to be very circumspect in how you do it. And my impression of Scott Strickland is that he's very much that kind of individual. He has strong core values and a very uh, fair sense of, of business. And uh, his I, I watched his interview last night on television. Are on the internet actually, and uh, it was, uh, you know, he conveyed that very convincingly to me that that's where his mindset is at this point, that he is, uh, he's he's acting in the best interest of the university, and he's guided by those core values I alluded to. Yeah, I was very impressed with the presser that he that he conducted last night, and it sounds like you 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 think he handled the situation well, and as a former athletic director. For Scott Strickland to face the the weird circumstances he faced, he seemed to cite that this was more than wins and losses. And of course, he left it at that. And we can speculate that it has to do with a variety of reported difficulties in the relationship between McElwain and Strickland. But as an athletic director, how much of that is true and not true? There's a lot of smoke in general in any program about how much the athletic director likes or dislikes the coaches. Uh, are those things real? Does, does that stuff happen? And if so, does it give an athletic director extra motive to attempt to get rid of a coach that maybe they don't get along with? Well, anything that's human, that's truly a human dynamic, is true of athletic directors and the coaches. I mean, it's uh, that's the reality of... Uh, if you're an athletic director or the president of the university or uh, an individual that's involved as a, as a head coach, uh, all of the all of the realities of human existence are a part of your makeup as well as those around you. So you have to deal with uh, uh, tendencies and urges and, and impulse and emotion and rational thought, uh, as well as uh, uh, suggestions that come to you from uh, from less generous uh mindset. Uh, and so you, you always have to deal with those things. How much exists is, is always hard to know. But I thought that with the way Scott expressed himself last night and, and was, again, using the word circumspect in his commentary, uh, he didn't get into the weeds, if you will, of, of, of disparaging any individual or their rationale uh, he talked about uh, different things and said, and I'll leave it at that, words to that effect, which which I think is entirely appropriate because uh, the public is entitled to know what's going on and, and the rationale in some situations, but there is, there is a boundary with regard to uh, what is civil 
and what what uh, conveys a sense of respect and uh, and deference within uh, a, a person's human rights. And uh, I think that uh, that's that was displayed in Scott's comments. So you're in a unique position to have experienced these type of situations before. Can you walk us through what it's like to have to fire a coach? What is that conversation like? What is the overall experience like left you with? It's it's a very, very difficult thing to do because you know if you're making a decision that uh, affects a, a an individual's life and especially if that person has uh, broader responsibilities of a family and uh, a spouse and children uh, and you dismiss that person, you have affected uh, multiple lives. And and uh you know the the network of relationships and family members that that individual has you're affecting them not not intentionally but uh incidentally or directly through through your actions and so that just causes you to be more um more thorough more deliberate in how you go about your decisions and and your actions and of course then you also have the legal dimension of what needs to happen and what can be done and what can't be done, as well as the political fallout from the ramifications. Uh, you make a certain decision and you get support from one constituency, but then you offend another, not necessarily with intent, but it happens. And other people uh, are going to uh, are going to be, be affected by those decisions. So it just makes you much more uh, much more uh, focused and intent in what you do, but ultimately the reality of of senior leadership, especially of large organizations, is that the ultimate skill, the the consummate skill, the most precious capability of a senior leader is the ability to consistently render good judgment. And that's how a senior leader justifies uh, their their position and their their the compensation the rewards they gain the authority that's bestowed upon them is the consistent display of good judgment and if if you in that position uh, fail to do that then uh, you undermine your credibility and uh, uh, mitigate your effectiveness to the point where it's questionable whether you should be there I do not at all see that case. In, in display here now with uh, what's happening at Florida Athletics and the University of Florida. In fact, I see just the opposite. I think I see um, a sterling example of of good good judgment and uh, and an action that is uh, advancing the program is as difficult as it is. I think it's the appropriate thing to do. So, as an athletic director, you you had to fire Charlie Pell in 1984. When you did that, did you have a list of someone that you wanted? Do athletic directors have a list ahead of time? Do you think that there's three or four guys they're kind of monitoring? Or is this something where it, it, it happens, you deal with it, then you start forming the list? Well, in all candor, in all candor, I, uh, I, I'll address that historic historical question uh, with – extreme uh, straightforward uh, response and that is uh, 
when I was appointed as athletic director in 1979, I was 33 years of age, 33 years of age, and uh, that was far too young. And I'm still, to my knowledge, the youngest in the history of the SEC. And there's a good reason why no one younger than that has been named. It's because there's no way that I was prepared for the position, nor could anyone uh, at such a tender age have had enough repetitions, if you will, of uh, of uh, gaining knowledge and wisdom and then trying to exercise judgment. There's no way you could be prepared. So I, I was, uh, I was because of what had happened with Charlie Pell and his uh, extreme degree of violations of NCAA rules, I was in high jeopardy myself as athletic director of being dismissed by the new president that had come in uh, prior, just prior to the, this act against Charlie Pell, uh, the president's name was Marshall Kreiser, and he was he was good enough to me to look into the circumstances and determine that uh, that I was not culpable in that, other than being a part of the environment that uh, the entire institution had, where Pell was protected from his from accountability, and so he did not dismiss me. So therefore. My authority, my capability, and my role in making the decision about the new coach was uh, was marginal. I was not sitting at the table as a decision maker. I was a voice in the choir, not as a person who was leading that search that resulted in the hiring of Galen Hall, who was the uh, interim head coach. Uh, so I can't I can't recount. Uh, my role as being one of, of, of strong leadership in that circumstance. And again, I'm just being extremely candid in that uh, because, because um, I, was, I was just, I was fortunate to be there at all, much less be a source of authority or power in that decision. Can you pull back the curtain for us a little bit on today's coaching searches? What is it like to hire a coach these days? What goes into a coaching search? What what are things that people maybe generally don't know? Well, a well a well conducted head coach, and let's talk about a head football coach search because those are the ones that are most uh, visible and most uh, determinative, and with enormous ramification if if they go well or if they go poorly. Um, it's it's a matter of understanding the current environment and uh, the two words that are most significant uh, within strategic planning or a search work. And those two endeavors from a consulting standpoint are enormously overlapping uh, because who, whom you hire to be your head coach is the most significant part of a strategic plan to improve your program is that you have to understand the context of the of the program at this given time and you have to make certain that whomever you hire and how they approach their role as head coach is aligned that's the second word first context and then alignment of that person's skill set and qualities experiences and uh good judgment if you will that i've already alluded to uh, are consistent with those of the university and if you hire a coach whose personality and whose values are outside of those parameters, you have not served your institution well. And I can think of uh, numerous times when that has happened. 
Um, in the last couple of years, it's been my privilege to work with some different Power Five programs and head coaching searches for football coaches, and um, I've been very pleased that the institutions took the time and allowed me to play my role as the search consultant and help them uh, define those critical issues or factors of success and therefore to pursue coaches who were consistent in their makeup, in their approach, in their style, if you will, as well as in their, uh, as well as in their values with the approach of the institution so that they truly fit is a very simple word, but one that's hard and, and essential to achieve is that, they, that the coach must fit that environment. Because if they don't, there's going to be a dissonance, a disconnect that ultimately can result in a point of separation uh, that is uh, traumatic for everyone. And you're talking a lot there about character, which I think, uh, as, Absolutely. You're, yeah, as you're alluding to, sometimes gets lost in the list of sort of wish list coaching searches. In this scenario or any coaching scenario, tell us tactically how this works. Like right now, the University of Florida a list of people are being generated, then they're getting vetted for the things you mentioned, then they get interviewed. Uh, is that sort of what this looks like? Well, uh, I can't speak to exactly what's happening at Florida, as you understand, but uh, basically the, the, the process of the search is, first of all, to analyze the situation, what is happening in our program, uh, what are the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats that are a part of this program? What are the things we need to be concerned about? Uh, you, it, you don't start by going out and, and uh, looking at names initially. First of all, it needs to be introspective and examining what is it that we as administrators and uh, as as support staff, what is it that we need to do better to give our head coach a chance to be successful because that's the role of athletic administrators is to create an environment in which coaches can be successful and which student athletes can be successful and other administrators. The role of the athletic director is to create that culture, that, that, that safe environment that is, that is accountable, but is consistent. It is entirely consistent with the, core values of the institution. Uh, again, that's the term I used earlier, alignment. Things are aligned and people see it's, it's not a matter of having everyone do things exactly the same. That's foolish. You, it's not going to be done exactly the same way, but you want to function within those core values and within that grid of expectation and resource and ambition and direction of the institution and of your athletic program. There's got to be a consistent standard of function and productivity and value that goes into everything that's done. And I feel good about the future of the University of Florida and its athletic program, given the leadership that's in place at this time. So, Bill, when you find some guys, a guy that you like as athletic director, how is contact made? Is, is a message sent to the agent? Is there a back channel? It, it, how, you know, so much is made of that. It's like a mysterious process. What is, what is typically done? Well, um, I've only done it about a hundred times, so I can't speak to it with any certainty. Uh, <laughs> but uh, because I've been in the search business for 20 years and I've had the chance to uh, participate in over a hundred searches for either coaches or 
athletic directors or uh, co- conference commissioners. Done about uh, eight or ten of those, and uh, so I've had a chance to walk the path a few times, which doesn't mean I have the, all the answers. I don't. That would be a foolish thing for me to say, but I do believe I have most of the right questions. And a consultant that that walks in the door with questions and asks for honest and comprehensive responses and then uh, uh, analyzes and synthesizes that consensus, then you've got something to work with and to build a profile for the ideal candidate. Uh, And then you know whom you should pursue. And so those discussions take place year round. Uh, we, We just... I just this past weekend I was at a professional development event that is focused on uh, on administrators. It was held at the campus at the University of Oklahoma, and and though we have to attend those kinds of events uh, for uh, for coaches and for administrators in order to maintain awareness of who are the people out there who have the capabilities and and we have to talk with agents. Agents are a big part of the business today because. The stakes are so high. The stakes are are huge. The you know the numbers, the dollars are so big, uh, and coaches are so consumed by their current responsibilities uh, that coaches just can't deal with all of the issues, the complexities of of the situation unilaterally. They have to have some help. Very very few uh, coaches today represent themselves without someone helping them in a significant way. I can't, in fact, I can't even give you the name of a coach who has no agent, a coach in the, you know, in the power five, which is the top 65 schools. I can't give you the name right off the top of my head of a coach that does not have any type of representation. They may not have a quote agent, but they have an attorney. They have a good friend. They have someone who's involved in helping them communicate when they're consumed by their job. They've got uh, someone there who can speak for them and and, and help them in their uh, communication. Uh, and so that's just a part of the business today. And just like there are good and bad in any position, there are there are good agents and there are bad agents. But most of them are, are constructive and are looking to do the right thing to help their clients in advance intercollegiate athletics. All right. So lastly... Speaking of agents and contracts and negotiations, the buyouts as a professional investor strike me as a very interesting thing. Uh, I understand the economics of, of leverage and negotiation, but these high-level buyouts that are given to unproven coaches at big schools seem interesting to me. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on those, and I want to know what's going on. So if, if a school is going to hire someone, and I'm the athletic director, and I say, here's the job, you can win national championships at Florida, which there are really only maybe 10 to 15 schools you can do that at, the candidate says, I'm not going to take this job unless I get market value XYZ buyout, and I understand that's there because of other coaches that have those sort of protective clauses. What is going to happen with the buyout marketplace? Because right now it is severely handicapping and costing schools like the University of Florida millions of dollars of which they are getting no return on investment for. Well, um, I have some very definite thoughts that are uh, critical, very critical thoughts about the compensation level for coaches today. Uh, I, I think it's, I think it's absurd. Uh, and I, 
I'm not naive in the sense that that I say that uh, that coaches aren't quote worth that in the commercial sense of the word. Uh, you know, I, I, just looking at at the USA Today came out with the the 2017 compensation levels just last week, and they show that, for example, that Nick Saban, who earned 11 million dollars this last year, uh, is is the highest paid coach in the country uh, and uh, last year, and that uh, that his buyout is 20. $26,900,000, that's his buyout. According, I'm looking right at the sheet of paper here that was in USA Today uh, at their link. Now, the question is, is Nick Saban worth that amount of money to the University of Alabama? Has he added value at that level? I would have to say absolutely he has. He has added that value. I don't deny that. But what I do uh, decry is the fact that that he is paid that much because this is not a commercial enterprise that he's involved in. Intercollegiate athletics is a function of higher education, and it's within that circumstance that he should be compensated. And I don't think that it is justifiable, regardless of the financial impact that he has, for an educational enterprise to pay a coach $11 million in a year. I think it's that kind of distortion, that kind of disproportion, if you will, that leads to the circumstance where the media and the general public cry out that student athletes should be compensated because look how much the coaches are making. My point is very simply that uh, that if student if we destroy the student athlete experience, if we t- if we make student athletes employees then we have just a minor league football program and we should be the Gainesville Gators. We should, we should not be the university of Florida Gators or any other university. I'm not, I'm not pointing out the university of Florida unilaterally uh, or individually because this, this scale down that I'm alluding to cannot occur unilaterally. It has to be of the entire enterprise. I think it is unrealistic to think that's going to happen unless there is an antitrust exemption granted to intercollegiate athletics by Congress. Will that happen? I think it's very difficult to see that occur. I mean, Congress can't get much done anyhow in any setting. And so how are they going to handle something as political as intercollegiate athletics? I I don't, so I I know I'm, I'm contradicting myself in the way I'm expressing that, but I'm saying that it's in my judgment, it is lamentable that we have this level of compensation and the circumstance where we're being compelled to pay student athletes. Uh, I, I don't think that that is, a, a con, that is consistent with the principles of higher education and the human development that is the ostensible outcome that we're looking for in this, uh, in this uh, enterprise called intercollegiate athletics. But that's that's my position. I don't have the answer to that, but I'm I'm advocating that we should have serious discussions as to how we might get to that point again without uh, without wrecking the whole uh, activity. Yeah, certainly interesting times, especially when you look at the fact that we're about to pay Will Muschamp a sizable sum of money. We've obviously paid McIlwain a lot of money, and in the past six seven years of the program, you know, you certainly haven't seen and those guys. And don't forget, and don't forget Ron Zook. Don't forget Ron Zook. 
Right, right. We hired University of Florida hired two people who had never been head coaches before, which is an enormous risk, enormous risk. Uh, that uh, that rarely occurs, rarely occurs in a Power Five program at the level of University of Florida. Uh, that is not that is not well advised. Yeah, and I guess sometimes you get those rare exceptions like Kirby Smart in, in year two over here. But you're you're right, and we've spent a lot of money and gotten not a lot of returns. So this one I know for Strickland will be will be a big deal. So far, so good based upon what he looks like. Uh, Bill, so great to visit with you. We always love having you on the show. Such good insight, such good viewpoints. Uh, we look forward to chatting with you again in the future. Thank you so much, and best wishes. Well, that was a really fun segment with Bill Carr. It's always great to hear a former athletic director's opinions and thoughts, even though he can't be as candid as I'm sure he'd even like to be. You still get some insights into what the process is like. All right. Besides us firing our coach and taking over the college football world over the weekend, there were some national games that happened that actually mattered for teams that are competitive. And we're going to look at those. And we picked them last week. Alan, I think you had an exemplary weekend of picking these games. So congratulations to you for being a savant. Thank you. Uh, you called this one correctly. I did not. I stuck with my boy Will Greer, except Oklahoma State downed West Virginia 50-39. to Will Greer's worst game as a college football player occurred. Uh, he really had a rough go of it. I think he threw four picks in this game, uh, and Oklahoma State went on to a rather comfortable win. So good win for them, tough win for Greer. Any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I mean, that's a good win for Oklahoma State in in West Virginia, Morgantown. You know, they needed this win because they're heading into Bedlam, and it, it would have been rough for them to lose to West Virginia. We basically derailed their season, so they needed this in the worst way. Yeah, fun game, high-scoring game, uh, but not not in my boy Will's wheelhouse on this one. So, you know, better game next week. All right, Georgia Tech against Clemson. Pedestrian game. Tech hung in there, but Clemson winds up winning 24-10. to 10. Yeah, this is about what we thought. Georgia Tech would keep it close. Clemson, I'm, I'm worried about them. I mean, Georgia Tech's tough to play, but we're about, we're about to have these playoff rankings released, and it'll be interesting to see what the committee does with Clemson. Yeah, they're weird right now. They're going to need to to get their their quarterback healthy and, and begin to sort of get back on the on the path. Uh, TCU against Matt Campbell's Iowa State loses fourteen to seven. TCU sort of really had a lot of chances in this game and could not score. Uh, exemplary job by Iowa State keeping them out of the end zone in this one. Great game right down to the end, even though it was low scoring. What do you got here? Yeah, I mean the Big Twelve is a hot mess. I don't, it's going to be really tough for them to produce a, a playoff contender at this point, I think. Um, Iowa State continues to muddle the waters there. Uh, TCU, I, I think this is the end of their reign as an elite team. Um, they've got some tough games left still, so I don't know. I, I think they were a little overrated at four, although they probably deserved it. I just didn't think that was really indicative of, of the type of team they truly are. Yeah, definitely not. And we mentioned they were for real beating West Virginia. I think that that's true. Iowa State's a hard place to win, but if you're a top four team, uh, you have to you have to win that game. You have to come away with a win somehow, and and they're unable to do it. And uh, you know that's that's the way it goes in college football. It's it's tough. It's tough to win these road games. NC State on the road against a surging Notre Dame. Notre Dame hammers them 35-14. Yeah. Two great back-to-back wins by Notre Dame, smashing USC and smashing NC State. My thoughts on this one, Alan. 
is that Georgia, that win on the road against Notre Dame is looking super, super, super good for them. And uh, it's setting up for an interesting finish of the season for Georgia. Notre Dame, on the other hand, they look like the team they were supposed to be, but people were hesitant to rank them in the preseason because of what had gone on there the past couple of years. Very impressive. Maybe their most impressive win. This is a really solid NC State team, and they really outclassed them. Uh, I was very impressed by them in this game. Craziest game of the weekend, Penn State, Ohio State. I thought Penn State would win this game. Uh, I Wild. Bet, I bet on Penn State, which was a winning bet. But at the end of the day, Ohio State, with five minutes left, comes back down two scores and wins this game 39-38. A collapse by Penn State is the best way to look at this. They had moved the ball consistently all day long and just were unable to get anything going on those last two drives. And uh, it ended them. And this is a crushing loss for Penn State. I think Penn State fans of five minutes to go are feeling really good about themselves. And and now they're probably still feeling fine, but a little bit sick after that result. Yeah, Ohio State, impressive. And their defensive line really torched Penn State. And much maligned on this podcast by both of us, JT Barrett was incredible in that fourth quarter. Almost unstoppable. So, and the... I still think Penn State's probably a better team in some sense, but this basically locks them out of the Big Ten title game. I mean, Ohio State would have to lose two conference games, and I just don't think that's going to happen. So really crushing for Penn State. Yeah, and that's kind of the problem with the current playoff system, but that's a that's a topic for another day. Uh, Houston... Downs Charlie Strong's USF, kind of the result they've been flirting with all year long. Houston's a nice team. They're not a great team. Uh, USF loses 28-24. Again, just a reason why Charlie Strong, I don't think, can be a candidate for this job. He's handed a pretty loaded USF team, and they have not done anything impressive really this whole season, and they cap it off by losing to a Houston team. Yeah, I agree with everything you said there. I think those are two evenly matched teams, and yeah, USF should be better. All right, let's look at the SEC. A couple of wild finishes here. Arkansas versus Ole Miss. 38-37, Arkansas on top. My thought on this one is that I have my buddy Eric Mutz text me and say I'm in this weird SEC pick'em league and I can only pick between Vandy, Arkansas, and some other team. Uh, Tennessee, I think is what it was. And I was like, listen, just go with Arkansas. It's going to be a crazy game. Maybe they win it at the end. And they did, and it was a crazy game. <laughs> and uh, one of those games were, hey, it'd be really fun if those two teams mattered at all. But they did play a fun football game. So for the fans that were watching, that's a fun game for them. Totally meaningless. Means nothing, but, you know, entertaining. Yeah, both, for both sides. Yep. All right, Vandy drops another one. The Fighting Will Muschamps pick up a pretty decent win for them, I guess, 34-27. This is a classic, like, Will Muschamp result. And this is, again, like, what I say. People tell me, hey, don't you think Will Muschamp has a chance to be successful in South Carolina and, like, turn the corner? And I say, no, no, he doesn't. He doesn't because of results like this. Like, it's a nice win if you're Will Muschamp. Solid. But this is yeah, not – this is not – this is not exciting. Vanderbilt's terrible. And, you know, I don't know. It just, the SEC is so bad. I look at these results each week and I just get depressed. It's horrible. Like Vanderbilt and South Carolina, those are bad football teams and they played a close game. So, you know, good for the SEC East, I suppose. Mississippi State probably puts Kevin Sumlin back on the hot seat. They win 35 14. 
Dan Mullen's year this year is a roller coaster of craziness. They either crush you or they get crushed. That that's like the result. And they we talked did, about that. Yeah, they did the crushing this time, and Sumlin again with a head scratching result. Again, he's got a freshman. I think that Mississippi State is a better team than A and M probably this year. But there's no reason why A and M should be losing this game by by 21 points. That's that's not acceptable, and that's again that's a sign of a coach who just doesn't have all of his ducks in a row. And that's really. If I'm an A&M fan, that's an unacceptable result to me. You cannot be taking that result when A&M so clearly outspends Mississippi State each year in football. That's that's not acceptable. So I think for Gator fans, the best case scenario is that someone keeps his job this year and doesn't further cloud the coaching market, another big player in it. So maybe cheer for A&M the rest of the way. All right, Tennessee... Woo, Butch loses to Kentucky 26-29. Butch Jones still employed Jim McElwain not. Did you see that one coming? Oh, man. I didn't, but I love it. And I love reading. I spent a considerable amount of time on Sunday night scrolling through <laughs> threads that people had posted that involved Tennessee fans melting down about how Butch Jones still has a job and Jim McElwain doesn't. And it's so, so great. Because astute Tennessee fans knew that McElwain wasn't good. And here we are ditching our coach so quickly, which I just love strategically. And those poor Tennessee fans are just dying. They're literally dying that they will not fire their coach. It's dumb. It's stupid. I don't know why they're holding to the old paradigm that you don't fire a coach till the end of the year. Uh, they probably could have won some of these games if they fired Butch Jones. I think you get that little, that little interim coach push. This is a, a just epic dumpster fire and for butch to be in year five and still be there it is it makes me laugh it's very entertaining i, I really it's great and uh no i don't think anyone saw mackwin being fired before butch the way things were going but i'm very glad that that's the case and the game we'll get to in our mizzou segment mizzou 52 uconn 12 another point barrage for mizzou and we'll tell you a little bit more about that coming up when we get to missouri itself but James, what do we got coming up next? Yeah, first we're going to visit with Ben Troop, and we're going to ask him questions related to, of course, all of the events of last week, as well as talk a little bit about the state of the current player in the program. What is the current Florida football player like, and is he connected at all to the past? Does he understand the history? Does he understand the importance and the prestige of the University of Florida? His answer might surprise you. So great segment forthcoming. All right, we are joined now by Ben Troop illustrious Gators tight end from the early 2000s, later on in the NFL. He also co-hosts the Three and Out radio program on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. You can find on the, find that on the ESPN app. Ben, thanks so much for being here today. Uh, thanks for having me. All right, let me just jump in, ask, ask you straight up. Give me your thoughts on McElwain getting fired this week. You know, going into the game, I, I heard some reports talking about that he was probably going to get fired, uh, win or lose. It doesn't surprise me because, for one, he's not Strickland's guy. And, number two, you know, the, the, the program, not, you know, is going, is going in a downward spiral. He was, and I think McElwain said it the best. He said they brought me in here to win games, but I didn't win the games that I was supposed to win. Like, you know, I didn't compete in the SEC Championship game. I, I lost to Michigan in both my first year in the bowl game as well as the first year going into my third year, and the offense has gotten worse. And when you t- and when you make the claims that he made off the field about him himself, his family, and the players, that's just something you just cannot do. So as a player, what's this like? You were there as Spurrier left and Zook came in. 
you also, I'm sure, knew some guys on the team when Zook got fired. As a player, what's that like experiencing a coaching transition? It's, it's rough. It's rough. I mean, I was there. You know, I went from Spurrier, the greatest coach of all time, you know, in my opinion, at UF, to go to, to, go to Zook. Even though I think Zook was a, a great recruiter and I think he was good for the university, I think that it's a culture shock because you're going to be in one of the elite programs with the possibly the best coach to a relative unknown, and you, but you're still at the same school. I mean, it's a, it's a culture shock for me as a player and, and for guys, but it's just it's that constant adjustment. I think that, you know, when you look at the University of Florida, I was there for Spurrier, but we also had Zook, McElwain, and Muschamp. But then you also had Amaya within that. So I just think that you got to kind of, you know, you hope that you hit the jackpot with guys like Meyer and Spurrier, but, but then again, you have to live with decisions that you make with guys like Muschamp, McElwain, and Zook. So, Ben – there's a report yesterday that the players were very upset that McIlwain was fired. And this is something that you hear really at most schools when the head coach gets fired. The question I have is why are the players mad? Do they not see the same thing that you and I see on the outside, which is a team that is not playing well? You imagine they also feel the frustration. Any, anyone who's played high-level sports knows what it feels like to be on a losing team. What's, what's, the, what's the rationale behind how these, these guys are upset when their coaches that aren't winning get fired? Well, you, you, well, you look at you look at the type of interaction. Coach Mack is a player's coach. I mean, you look at how Cleveland, those guys go to bat for him and say how much they love him, and they appreciate him kind of like sheltering them for what goes on with things they can't control. So they know the man more than we do. All we do is see him on Saturdays. They get to interview him, and we we judge the McElwain off wins and losses. They judge him more off the type of man he is, the type of coach he is. And while they they think it with their hearts, they ain't thinking. You know, they they think it might you know it might be coming from a good place, but it ain't realistic. They still young. We gotta remember these are, you know, seventeen to twenty two year old young men who they just wanna, you know, they like that feel good, you know, type coach that Coach Mackey is a good motivator. But if you ain't winning and they seem to and that's that's what they don't understand. You can't be at the University of Florida and become a losing, you know, program. That's not something that because UF is one of the premier schools in the country. So why they thinking with their hearts, they're not understanding the reality of the fact that this man was brought in to do a job and he's not doing it. And and understanding that reality, this is something we see a lot, whether guys like yourself go into the NFL. When do you think players tend to get the wisdom to really view it differently? When do they start to critically examine their own team they're on and start to make some thoughts about Hey, is this the best situation for me style-wise? You know, we had Kiwan Ratliff on the show earlier, and he talked a lot about matching up his skill set in college with the program he thought would benefit him and then doing something similar in the NFL. We know from interviewing lots of players that is not a, a normal thought. It tends to be that's more on the, the more informed scale. When did you yourself sort of flip the switch from emotional player under a coach to maybe someone who's part of the process and also thinking more like uh, they're an owner, if you will? When I when I got Zook, when Zook when Zook came my junior year, I, my my uh, he helped me position and change my way of thinking because as a player, you got to think. I I picked I picked Florida strictly because Spurrier was there. College is the one place that you go there because of the coach. The coaches in college are the rock stars. That's why you want to go there. I mean, I, I said this. I went to Florida. They didn't even throw the ball to the tight end, and I still picked Florida. Now going back, would I do it the same way? Probably not because. I didn't have the level of exposure that these young men have. Like you said with Key One, he went somewhere that utilized his skill set. So if I'm coming out now in 2017, I don't go to Florida. I'm picking teams like Michigan and Clemson and Ole Miss, teams that I see utilize what I do. But these kids now, what hurts them the most is the exposure that they get from high school. 
They think because I was a top 300 player, a top 10 player, that that's going to resonate in the NFL. The only number one pick that I remember, I mean, the only number one player I remember that was the number one uh, high school recruit and was the number one player picked in the draft was Jadavion Clowney. I don't remember the rest of them. And I think what happens with these young guys now is they think that they can live off who they used to be. I mean, I love Chauncey Gardner. I mean, I think he's going to be an incredible player. But when you say things like you say on Twitter and you ain't doing what you're doing on the field, that hurts your draft stock. That's not helping it because, yes, you were the Army All-American, but since you've been to Florida outside of your freshman year, it's not the same production. So I think, like I say, these guys, they live in perception. But reality is going to set in when the draft comes and it comes and goes, they don't hear their name called. Yeah, that's such a good point about the the hype machine that exists in high school and how, how, like you're saying, it's hard for these guys to transition to really understanding maybe what a realistic evaluation of themselves looks like. So you made some key points there that are going to lead into this question. You talked about how maybe you wouldn't choose Florida again if you're in 2017 based upon the usage of tight ends. Uh, This is true of recruiting across the board. And therefore, it makes this next coaching hire really important. Give me three or four guys that are on your wish list. And is there anyone out there that you really, really want to be the next head coach of the University of Florida? I mean, I, w- I would be crazy if I didn't say that. I-, I like Charlie Strong. I think Charlie Strong is a guy that Florida wanted from a long time ago. But like I said, he didn't have that coaching credibility. You see what he's doing at USF. You see the success he had <laughs> at Louisville. But obviously, it didn't work out of Texas. I like Frost. I really, really think Coach Foss is a, good, is a guy that could come in and get the program where it needs to be. But I think the best is Dan Mullen. I think Dan Mullen is a guy that been to Florida, understand what it takes to not only coach but win there. He understands the culture of not just Florida but the SEC 